Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Jeremy Black, MBE. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He has written well over 150 books, making him by far the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we are discussing his book, A New History of England, published by the History Press. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is uh, what may say is the thesis of your book? Well, I think that it's an attempt to look at long-term patterns in English history as opposed to British history. And obviously, I've written very extensively about British history, and we've discussed that uh, quite considerably. Um, I last had a shot at English history in the year two, or it was published in 2000. And obviously, not only have things happened since, but it also what has been happening and just the work of others and how one thinks about it has offered an opportunity to reflect over the longer term. How important to England's history is her geography? Oh, I think that's an excellent question. I think the geography is really important. I mean, you're talking about a place which is part of the continent of Europe, but nevertheless is not continental, as we would use the term in England. In other words, part of the landmass. Um, and I think that's very significant, uh, possibly less significant for present day uh, people who don't, as it were, go down to the sea, if you see what I mean, in terms of their life and their jobs. And if they visit a sea, it tends to be the Mediterranean or further climes visited by air. Um, but until very recently, there was much more of a maritime experience, a maritime culture and a maritime economy. And I think that was very important. And then obviously within England itself, you've got a whole host of things. I mean, one of the most important is the very heavy resources of coal in England. And indeed, um, one of the ludicrous notions that goes around at the moment is that uh, modern English, modern British wealth derives from slavery, uh, which is an absurdity. And obviously, as you will be aware, uh, if it was slavery, you would have Portugal as probably the world's wealthiest um, economy. Um, but no, it's coal, and coal was absolutely crucial to the particular developments of England over the last quarter millennium. When and how can we trace the coming of the Celts to England? Well, any details in the pre Roman period are by their nature, uh, we have only a limited amount of information on them. But it seems from archaeological work we could be looking at about 600 uh, BC as a period in which you were getting a large Celtic presence. Um, and that's part and parcel of a wider uh, movement of Celts within Europe. Uh, would you, I'm sorry, how important to the history of England was a period of Roman rule? How Romanized was England, say, circa 350 AD? Well, it's less Romanized than France or Gallia, Gallia, I should say, but, you know, less, less Romanized than France and Italy or Spain. But nevertheless, it's under um, un Roman rule that England is first 
if you like, politically integrated, also first integrated with a system of purpose-built communication routes in the sense of the roads the Romans pushed in and also with a large amount of towns built that were subsequently to be significant. Would you agree? And I mean other themes, sorry, other themes that are worth bearing in mind is Roman rule is the period when Christianity comes in. Um, you know, I mean, you asked a very good question. You say how deep it was, because clearly there is an argument that Romanitas is essentially a matter of elites and urban dwellers and not people that live in um, rural communities. Um, and to a certain extent, that would be true, but that doesn't necessarily lessen its impact. And we are, in terms of the Roman period, talking about uh, a predominant, maybe not uh, grossly predominant, but a predominant population which is uh, rural, rural-based. Yes, the predominant population is rural-based, but the political significance of that population is limited. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, in both the rural base and those who lived in the towns are similarly members of an imperial order which is directed from overseas. So they are similarly um, subjects from that perspective. And of course, um, you know, there is a degree to which um, the um, sort of um, Britannia um, is a, you know, it's a colonized um, and garrisoned uh, territory. Would you agree with the historian Brian Ward Perkins that the post-Roman period in England's history saw a collapse of its socio-economic structure? Um, I think, again, we have to look carefully at the distinction between uh, rural and urban society. The amount of disruption in the rural landscape was almost certainly far less than the discontinuities in urban life, which certainly existed. Do we have any good ideas about the level of or the extent of continuity as opposed to discontinuity of the population in, of England in the post-Roman period? Um, well, there, as you know, there's an enormous amount of debate about it. Uh, and also, I think it ought to be said that when we're looking at the so-called barbarian invasions, or whatever term you wish to use for them, uh, coming of the Anglo-Saxons, Jutes, Scots, etc. Um, I think it's fair to say that we should be looking at a period that lasts a considerable degree of time. So we know from travellers to England that there was still urban life, for example, at places like St Albans um, in the 1440s, um, but there is likely to have been greater discontinuity as um, invasion came through and then subsequently a process of syncretism. Now, a lot depends, as you will know, on the debate as to how far the invaders were essentially warrior bands or how far they brought a significant amount of uh, people with them. And that is, I think it's fair to say, a matter that people uh, are very divided about and continue to be very divided about. If it is the former, it is likely to have been less disruptive and more intermarriage with, uh, compulsory or otherwise, with existing population. 
Uh, if it is the latter, there's more room for a significant population transformation. And um, in terms of that debate, I think one of the premises is that uh, there is a differential in terms of the, the influx of uh, new populations from uh, north and northwest Germany if you, as you go from east to west, meaning obviously in the case of Kent, there's much higher degree of influx than there is in places further west. Yes, although that's very true. Although, I mean, if you're looking uh, going further west, Kent, you get in west into Wessex, the uh, area of the West Saxons, originally based in Hampshire, capital eventually at Winchester. Um, and, you know, eventually uh, that comes through to where I live, Devon, and in fact goes in, I think it's 838 into Cornwall. So, um, yes, disruption might have been less in the outset, but on the other hand, it was a continuing process. Now, is it correct to say that there are um, perhaps less than five written texts in England in the 150 years after the end of Roman rule? Yes, I think that is correct to say. I mean, but on the other hand, I think it's fair to say that the kind of contexts within which um, uh, written texts would be produced were largely absent. I mean, if you're thinking about it, if you were, if you're looking at what subsequently produces the context for such texts, and you're thinking of the great um, monasteries, for example, the Northumbrian one at Lindisfarne. Um, then obviously those institutions aren't present. So a lot of it does depend upon the available context. I mean, there's been a, a discontinuity in the end of Roman government, and there hasn't yet been a continuity yet that is to be established in the sense of the creation of a monastic structure of an English-based Christianity. How and why did England, by the beginning of the 11th century, develop perhaps the most advanced state apparatus in Western Europe? Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question. And as you, can I just say, I'll happily answer or try and answer that. As you may know, there'd be one or two scholars on continental work, say, uh, the, you know, David Bacharach and his father, Bernie Bacharach, would probably argue that the military raise, raising capacities of Carolingian and Etonian society are, are up there. So I think it's fair to say, um, let, but, you know, let's leave aside the debate about Carolingian and post-Carolingian governance uh, on the continent and look at the situation in England. Um, I suppose you could argue that a lot of it is a matter of the extrapolation into a country from which the Danes have been driven of a template of quite effective government that's developed in Wessex in the late ninth um, century. And that this template with the um, local militia, with a local judicial system, with a degree of representation in it, obviously we're talking about adult males, um, works, and that England is not too big for it to be really flawed. So there's clearly a problem if you're looking at the so-called empire, what we might call Germany or France, which are much larger areas. 
Um, but I think one ought to emphasize that whatever the strengths of the old English monarchy, um, it did succumb um, to invasion by the Danes in the 1010s, Sven and then Knut, and, or Knut, and Knut and his sons rule from 1016 to 1035, and then again succumbed in 1066. Now, we have to be careful here. Military failure does not mean necessarily the failure of a political and governmental system, but we do need to be aware of this issue. And certainly, as I've written elsewhere, the uh, power of the Elderman um, in the 11th century, of whom the most famous is Earl Godwin, um, is one which could be, it is argued, a threat to the sort of the usual template of old English monarchy and a threat that looks towards um, the, um, in a sense, a pattern which is not too dissimilar to the development of private jurisdiction, i.e. feudal power, um, in France. The Norman Conquest, extreme discontinuity as, as per the concept of the Norman, so-called Norman yoke or not? Well, I mean, I think it certainly was extreme discontinuity in that large numbers of people got killed. Most of the elite got, uh, who weren't killed, were driven from um, from their estates. The church was purged. So, yes, I think it is extreme discontinuity, uh, much more so, incidentally, than that which was represented by uh, Canute, um, uh, who very much between 10... Uh, 16 and his death in 1035, I think it is, or is it 37, um, very much, uh, 35, uh, very much um, ruled in a way taking over the the existing pattern. So no, I would say it is quite significant discontinuity. I mean, obviously there are elements of continuity, but I would argue discontinuity is what comes more to mind. Would it be true to say that on the whole, you seem to regard the Norman Conquest, to employ a phrase from 1066 and all, and all that, as uh, more or less, quote, a bad thing, unquote? <laughs> well, I think it was a bad thing for those people who lived in England at the time. I mean, I from the perspective of 2021, I'm not, I'm not sure that I would... Uh, necessarily have a view on that, but certainly at the time I think it was that. And actually, it also led to a pattern of linkage with power politics on the continent, in which a lot of English wealth and treasure was devoted to wars for the benefit of monarchs, which had very little interest uh, for for England itself. Uh, how would you surmise England's history would have um, developed if there had not been a Norman conquest, would have been more akin to what we saw in terms of patterns of a, a civil society or proto-civil society state interaction to what you saw eventually in Scandinavia? Yes, and I don't think you would argue that Denmark, for example, was a failure as a political system in the medieval period. So I think the notion that you had to be conquered by the Normans in order to move forward a stage, whatever you mean by that. I'm not saying you're saying that, but in order to uh, in order for that to occur, I think is deeply flawed. I think um, England could ha have been an effective and successful 
polity in society without the Norman Conquest. Would it be true to say that the development of English constitutionalism in the 13th century was primarily a result of kingly incompetence? <laughs> well, that's fascinating. I mean, obviously, we're thinking there of, of John and Henry III. Um, I, well, one of the things that links, I mean, John, John really got stuffed uh, because of his, uh, his failure uh, failures on the continent um, and in a way that both undermined his prestige, it wrecked his finances and ultimately it led to French troops in England. Um, the, uh, the political crises that you see subsequently are often linked to foreign wars and the costs incurred by them and then the need to find a new political and constitutional consultative mechanism to raise more money so to that extent let's say uh well ill fortune i think rather than incompetence i'm i mean put it like this if john had been successful then we might be seeing this differently but certainly uh, ill fortune is a key element would you say on the whole that there was a structural aspect to the political instability in English history from the period running from 1376 to 1487? Um, well, there's the combination of the classic problems affecting dynastic monarchy, which is insecurity of succession and ability issues. Um, and on top of that, an unsuccessful international uh, context and added to that uh, adverse uh, environmental um, situation uh, in terms of the economy and population. So I think the combination of those three uh, produce real problems. Yes, I would, I would agree with you. And um, as you would know um, from, and you end it with the Battle of Stoke in 1487, I think it's fair to say that uh, if you look forward over the following century, you've got general population rise and economic growth, which helps to produce more funds. You've got um, greater, though not consistent, uh, dynastic stability. And although there are some stupid commitments to foreign politics and foreign wars accordingly, uh, less consistently so than during the period of the Hundred Years' War with France. Perhaps the first English constitutional scholar, Sir John Fortescue, writing in the middle of the War of the Roses, uh, premised his uh, works on the idea that England's polity was markedly different from, those, from that of those regimes on the continent. In subsequent uh, scholarship, would people still agree with that? Well, I think, as you know, this is a highly contentious issue. Um, I mean, one of the things I've argued is that there are, um, that what the mistake is sometimes to assume that there is one pattern on the continent, but continental history looks as different from Munich, Madrid, Milan, and Marburg as it does from Manchester. Um, but if what you were doing is contrasting as Fortescue essentially was France and England, then yes, I would say that is definitely the case.
Do the first 40 years of Tudu rule in England represent continuity or discontinuity? Um, well, less, less discontinuity than you're subsequently going to get with the Henrician Reformation and the Edwardian Reformation. I mean, the first 40 years is 1485 to 1525. Um, I would say compared to what had happened in the 40 years before or the 40 years after, in relative terms, this is more continuity. Why do you not agree with Sir Geoffrey Elton that there was a, quote, Tudor revolution in government, unquote? Well, I think that's a very limited account, which was based, I mean, his book came out in 1950, I think it is, uh, and he was very much looking at particular administrative agencies, and I think it was based on a misreading of the situation uh, in the medieval period. I think it underrated the significance of administrative change instead in the later Stuart and early 18th century. And I don't think he really captured in his book the, you know, he was a great advocate of Thomas Cromwell. I don't think he really captured the limitations of what Cromwell achieved. But, you know, the, there, is, there has been a lot of literature uh, looking at um, the so-called Tudor Revolution government, and much of that has asked some pretty tough questions about about it. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind also that if you're looking at um, some of the more interesting governmental innovations under the Tudors, um, so things like uh, poor law um, uh, administration or the development of chartered companies for trading abroad, um, those are not ones that are quintessentially focused in the years that Elton was looking at. How do you evaluate the reign of Elizabeth Tudor? Was she in fact Gloriana? I think she was an extremely impressive monarch and I think, I mean obviously in my book I didn't have time to always make comments on what was going on abroad, but I think if you compare her to her counterparts in France, for example, I think she seems even more impressive. I think stability is a great virtue politically. It is one that is underrated, I think, today. And I think Elizabeth uh, was able to bring that in both the political sense and the religious sense. I think she was unwise to go to war with Spain in 1585, but her political room for manoeuvre was not enormous then. But that helps to produce the political crisis and problems of her later years. Was the outbreak of the English, English Civil War, from your perspective, a contingent or a structural event? Oh, very much a contingent event. I don't think there was anything inevitable about the course of development in the late 1630s and early 1640s, and I'm, I'm very wary about uh, determinist accounts of history. Would it be true to say that you are not as favorably inclined towards the period of the personal rule of Charles I as, uh, say, scholars like Kevin Sharp are? Well... <laughs> By inclined, I'm not quite sure what you mean there. I mean, I, I think that there were serious limitations, uh, but um, I do think he was very sensible 
uh, during that period, we're looking uh, for the benefit of listeners at 1629 to 1640. I think he was very sensible to stay out of the Thirty Years' War. I don't think he was at all sensible in his policies towards Scotland. Um, but And I don't think that, I mean, he would probably have felt that he didn't have a choice, but I don't think that his religious uh, support for Archbishop Lord and Arminianism was terribly wise. But, I mean, he was not a disaster. He becomes a disaster, but he was not a disaster, shall we say, in the early 1630s. Would you agree with Jonathan Clark that the events of 1688 in England uh, was not a, quote, glorious revolution, but, quote, merely a petulant outburst, unquote? Uh, well, I mean, I think, put it like this, I think you could argue it both ways. I mean, I think Jonathan's being deliberately provocative. I have great admiration for him. It doesn't mean I agree with absolutely everything he says. Um, I think that the revolutionary character of what occurs in 1688-89 is stronger in Scotland and Ireland than it is in England, or for that matter, Wales. I think that the constitutional arrangement, the so-called revolution settlement, works in hindsight and indeed works in the short term. One of the unfortunate consequences from my perspective, because I do genuinely believe that you're often wise to stay out of wars, is that the accession of William of Orange as William III means that uh, England becomes involved in a very difficult war, the uh, War of the League of Augsburg. Uh, I think it's called in America King William's War. We would generally call it the Nine Years' War. Germans call it the War of the Palatine Succession and so on and so forth. Um, but the, um, the um, So that, I think, is unfortunate. But I think the long-term consequences were probably benign. Well, why structurally did the UK, now we're talking about the UK, as opposed to England, why did the UK win the Second Hundred Years' War? Uh, do you agree with John Brewer's thesis on the subject? Well, I think that all these arguments about determinism, and in the case of Brewer, you're thinking about uh, public finance and its development, and in fact, Brewer was just offering a new version of Peter Dixon's more complex but much more grounded and sensible financial revolution in, in Britain. Um, if you're looking at um, the, you know, determinism, I mean, what would you have said if Napoleon's forces had landed in 1805 and marched down Whitehall? <laughs> I think, you, you know, it's not clear that Britain ha is on the winning side till after the Battle of the Nations at Leipzig in late 1813. Until then, it's been an enormous risk and remember things had gone wrong i mean one hardly you know one could think of yorktown in 1781 as a classic example uh, but there are other ones but if you are looking at the particular strengths britain has then clearly its dynamic economy is important its um, its strength and its uh, naval capacity its strength and its maritime marine um, its ability as an island to not be totally dependent on uh, on uh, battle at, uh, battle on land. I mean, you can contrast Hanover, which in 1741 is threatened by French invasion. 1757 is overcome by French invasion. 1803 um, is annexed. 
um, and obviously those are the dominions of the monarch on the continent, those are really vulnerable, and you can contrast that with what happens in Britain. But as I've said, I would be wary of arguing that there is a determinism, and a lot is dependent also on French policy. French policy tends to be much more landward than maritime. There are maritime figures, Colbert, obviously, Meuripa, uh, um, are examples. Uh, but the, I think it's fair to say that the, um, um, the French focus, and it's a very good book by Jim, Jeffrey Simcox on the crisis of French sea power in the 1690s, in which he shows that the French did have a choice after their disastrous defeat by the English at Barfleur in 1692, they did have a choice as to what they chose to do. Did they then choose to build up another big fleet? And they focused instead, understandably, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but they focused instead on landward power. And one of the things I would say is that one way to look at the Second Hundred Years' War is the clash between an oceanic and a landward power system. And neither of them are in the con a, a, able to knock the other out. Uh, the British, ultimately, in order to knock Napoleon out, are dependent in part on allies on the continent, as indeed is the case with the defeat of Hitler in 1945. Um, the only real exception to that. I would argue, in the sense, um, uh, is when you actually have much more limited wars, and in much more limited wars, the equations of strength can be much more carefully calibrated, and you don't need a knockout blow in order to win your war. So, let's just give you an example. Um, uh, for you know the uh, conflict against Spain, for example, in 17. Uh, 18 to 1720, where the British have allies, um, but neither power is it, no power involved in that is planning to knock the other one out. What circa the mid 18th century was the relationship between Britishness and Englishness? Most English people thought of Britishness as a type of Englishness. I think there's no doubt about that, and they were thinking in terms, in part, of multiple identities. Now. The Scottish investment in Britishness was always very different. Um, but I think for the English, there was not necessarily an uh, incompatibility there. And I think that remained the case. Was there, in terms of international politics, a Pax Britannica in the 100 years after 1815? Well, there was only one war against another continental power, and that was the Crimean War of 1854-56. I mean, obviously, um, you know, the British did a fair amount of fighting other people around the world. Um, you know, for example, China, like conflicts in Africa and so on. Uh, but yes, Britain wanted to be a low-tax society. It did not have, it wasn't militaristic uh, in the sense that it didn't have compulsory military service. Um, the ethos uh, was not primarily that, that that you would say you get by, say, Prussia by the 1890s, 1900s. Um, so, yes, I would say that the British wanted uh, peace. And interestingly enough, since we're talking about England, uh, I would say that value was much more strongly pronounced in England. I mean, obviously, disproportionately, a high percentage of the, uh, of the army and the, it comes from Scotland. 
was the decline of the liberal party in the 20th century from your perspective primarily a structural or a contingent event uh, in the oh, case I think it, uh, go ahead sorry, yeah. I think it's contingent I mean if you think about it the conservatives have lost um, you know they lose the 1906 general election they then you know they're out um, really um, uh, they would have stayed out I think it's fair to say but for World War One. I mean, the liberals are experimenting with uh, their forms of coalition governance with both um, Irish home rulers and with um, Labour. And you could argue that both of those are unstable. But on the other hand, you could say, well, not so, that Irish home rule would probably have prevailed but for World War One, which would have left a sort of solid block of Irish MPs who didn't want anything to do with the Conservative Party because that was a unionist party. Um, and you could also say that there was no inherent reason why... Um, the Liberals would fail to have a significant tranche of working class support. Um, so I'm not sure that there was anything inevitable about liberal decline. I mean, I, what I do think is that the Conservatives were brilliantly successful at uniting anti-Labour um, opinion around them. And I think that's always been when they've been most successful uh, since then. Why do the British... Go in the words of Raymond Aron, uh, the French um, commentator um, and scholar, from being quote Romans to Italians in unquote in the post 1945 period. Um, well, the decline of Britain in relative terms is one that I tried to deal with with my book on Britain since 1945. I think there were very serious failures in leadership, very serious failures in political culture, very serious failures in society as a whole. It became more hedonistic, more individualistic, less interested, more narcissistic. And I think that's very much the state in which um, British political culture and British culture as a whole is located at the moment. So I think there were very serious failures. I mean, people threw away the accumulated values of the past, imagining that they could create a new set of values that would produce a coherent, peaceful, stable and benign society. Well, it didn't really work out like that, or certainly didn't for large tranches of the people. Why did the British economy perform so poorly as compared to its um, other uh, countries in the OECD um, group in the post-1945 period? Um, a variety of reasons. I mean, one of them was very uh, deleterious central government control, particularly nationalizations by political, politically based by Labour, overly powerful trade unions and a failure to legislate to limit their powers. Um, poor investment policies, I think all of those played a significant role. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, I think it would take, I, what I would like them to take away is that it is a fascinating story. I mean, I've tried to capture that, and I mean, you've done a really good job of 
bringing out much of it, but I've also tried, for example, to look at culture, uh, to look at all sorts of elements. I mean, it is a very rich, complex and interesting uh, history and one that we can approach in all sorts of ways uh, because we have, uh, in a sense, for, from so far back, uh, a, a dynamic world of public, uh, uh, relatively free publication, uh, which gives us, and of archival um, sort of continuity, which gives us enormous amount of access to what has happened in uh, in English history. And I've tried to capture that. I think it is, I hope it is, a very interesting read. And that, in a sense, is not a, it's not praise on me. It's praise on uh, many of those I've been able to quote. And it's praise on the actual interest of the subject. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.